2: Welcome to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring pressing public management issues facing us today. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Whether reforming the military health system, building the 21st century United States Coast Guard, leveraging science and technology to secure the homeland, or preparing for the next administration, the keys to success are strong leadership, good management, the right talent, solid decision-making, and a willingness to take risks. This edition of the Business of Government magazine highlights strong leaders with the right talent who are charged with executing the business of government. These leaders are responsible for a vast array of government missions that comprise a significant chunk of the federal government budget. It is my charge to tell their stories, outline their collective challenges, illustrate their respective successes, share the lessons they've learned, and ultimately, to impart how best we can help these leaders be effective. It is about fulfilling the IBM Center's own mission, connecting research to practice. We do this with each edition, offering timely, relevant, and thoughtful perspectives from leading practitioners and public executives. A common thread binds together most of the features in this edition. That is, strong leaders and good management can set an administration up for success in achieving policy and political priorities while mitigating risks. First up, conversation with leaders featuring four government executives who exemplify a commitment to trying new and improved ways of doing things. Their respective missions force them to look ahead, and although they come from a host of disciplines and federal agencies, they share a single constant. They are all focusing on finding what works. Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, leads DHS's Science and Technology Directorate, from border security to biological defense to cybersecurity to explosive detection s is at the forefront of integrating R&D to meet Homeland Security mission needs. Dr. Brothers discusses his strategic priorities, the national conversation on Homeland Security technology, and the importance of making connections and harnessing innovation.
3: Our, our mission is to um, use the tools of, of, of technology and, and those of science to um, help make our country, our communities, uh, our people more secure. And I think the reason why that's changed over time has been because the, the way we do research, the way we do innovation in this country has fundamentally changed over, over time. We have a uh, research and development budget, um, about 400 to $450 million per year, uh, about 1,000 people. And while uh, many of our staff are located here in the D.C. area, we have laboratories and universities across the country. All this comes from the Homeland Security Act of 2002, uh, where this, my role was, was authorized. Essentially, I'm the science advisor to the secretary and the deputy secretary. I'm responsible for the oversight of the department's research and development uh, portfolio. I'm also responsible for operational test and evaluation. Uh, we have uh, 11 centers of excellence, uh, 13 bilateral relationships with our international partners. Uh, we oversee the Safety Act. We work in export control, so there's a tremendous variety of things that we do. Making a difference in securing
2: the homeland comes with serious challenges. Dr. Brothers outlines the challenges he
3: faces. So at the top level, uh, one of the biggest challenges I found uh, coming into this position was the fact that um, there are different time constants. Uh, in terms of, of the responses we have to give. So, for example, uh, there are certain things that we have to research over a longer period of time. So, for example, different types of phenomenologies for detecting explosives, for example. right? So that can lead to a longer-term research effort. But then all of a sudden, uh, a gyrocopter lands in the White House. Uh, we are threatened with drones uh, in some ways. And you end up with these quick, as I call them, pop-ups that we have to deal with. What's challenging from a research and development um, institution's perspective is how do you manage that kind of capacity, right? So if you've got a an investment portfolio, you have resources, you have people that are working on these longer-term research and development projects, and all of a sudden something happens, how do you develop that flex capacity? Another large challenge I have that's related is then within those, those priority areas, how do you prioritize those, right? So how do you figure out, given the relative impact of different types of threats, the probability of these threats, how you determine what you should invest in.
2: More often than not, there are unanticipated surprises that come along
3: with these challenges. Dr. Brothers explains. I think there are these so-called black swan events that people talk about, right? These things that are unexpected, but once you see them, you probably should have realized these things would actually happen. So as the pace of technology increases, as the pace of technology, technological adoption increases, uh, we have to be very concerned with what does that mean as we are trying to uh, uh, not put limits on commerce, on economic gains, but how do we make people and the communities more secure at the same time?
2: Tackling challenges and surprises requires a focused strategic vision and the pursuit of key priorities.
3: Um, so the five priorities as follows. Uh, I wanted to develop a vision or goals that, that I mentioned a little bit earlier. I wanted to produce an actionable strategy. I wanted something to actually lead to lead us to be able to do something that we need to do, lead to these vision or goals. So if the vision or goals are 15, 20, 30 years out. The third thing was foster an empowered workforce. Uh, fourth, uh, deliver force-multiplying solution to Homeland Security stakeholders. These are These are, again, our, our operational components. And then the fifth... I think very important is energize a homeland security industrial base. As threats
2: and security challenges evolve, the science and technology Directorate within the Homeland Security Department is posed to address them with innovative programs that not only bridge current capability gaps, but also implement concepts and visionary goals that look 20 to 30 years ahead. The DHS Science and Technology Centers of Excellence develop multidisciplinary, customer-driven homeland security science and technology solutions but more importantly,
3: they help train the next generation of homeland security experts. So we're setting up a work on our innovation centers. And we're starting one with the Coast Guard to put our people with the Coast Guard and to help transition. Because this is a big problem with research and development, as you know. How do we actually transition our technologies to our end users? And that's what, borrowing from the corporate, corporate industry model, we're trying to use that as, as we structure ourselves within the homeland security inter- enterprise. Here's Dr. Reggie Brothers on what is needed for government to operate at the pace of innovation and
2: be a stronger partner in a digital age.
3: So I think part of the part of the issue is being aware of of innovation, and uh, the only way we can operate at the pace of innovation is to to be part of it and to be part of the community that is innovating, um, and that's why I was talking so much about this outreach to the all the sectors, all the parts of the um, S ecosystem. Um, I think it's, it's um, myopic to think that um, government um, really has an understanding just within itself of what's going on across these, the different domains of, of, of technology, particularly in this age where you're seeing convergence of different areas of discipline from mathematics, biology, physics, engineering, etc. They're leading to such great advancements that we're seeing right now. To show his commitment as a strong partner with the private sector, for the
2: second year in a row, Dr. Brothers participated in the South by Southwest Interactive. He had discussions with innovators and community leaders. Awareness is rising on how his area is reaching out to creative entrepreneurs who see opportunities and solutions when they hear about complex security problems. This kind of support from innovative thinkers, creators, and makers is important if we're going to meet the highly technical security challenges facing our future. The recognition of how technology is changing the way we think about communications, do business, and provide security is itself changing how governments operate and prepare for a future of increased connectivity and mobility.
3: So I think the major key is the government, people in the government, because it is all about people again, people in the government have to be exposed to and have continuous dialogue with innovators across the entire ecosystem.
2: Talk about an ecosystem. With more than one out of every six dollars of federal government spending going to contractors, it is imperative that the federal government leverage its buying power, drives more consistent practices across the federal enterprise, shares information, and reduces duplication while providing better results for the American taxpayer. Anne Rung, administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy at the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, shapes the policies and practices federal agencies use to acquire the goods and services they need to carry out their mission.
0: The overall goal of the office is to increase the economy and efficiency and effectiveness of federal acquisitions. And the statute outlines some specific areas uh, where the administrator plays a leading role, such as helping to promote and advance small business participation. The administrator oversees the federal procurement data. Uh, The administrator chairs several government-wide councils, including the chief acquisition officers' council, uh, and the Category Management Leadership Council is something I created that is not in statute but an important council that I run.
2: Working across the government enterprise is no small feat. And when you're talking about properly procuring the goods and services needed to keep the engine of government rolling, it can be quite challenging.
0: So I would say one of the greatest challenges but also opportunities uh-huh is the technology piece, right? The rapidly changing world of technology. And how do we, how do we catalyze and convene both the, the private sector and, and government to think about the best ways to use technology to better serve the citizens? I think a second challenge for any administrator is just the sheer size and scope of the federal acquisition space. So we are larger than any company or any federal procurement system in the world. We spend $440 billion a year, and that's spread across 37,000 contracting officers around the globe. So just the, the sheer size and scope of it is is pretty significant. And I'd say the third challenge is generally just a culture within federal acquisitions of being Very rules-based, very risk-averse. It's very much a check-the-box mentality. And when you think back to the first challenge that I talked about of how to take advantage of the rapidly changing world of technology, being very rules-based and uh, risk-averse would seem contrary to sort of taking advantage of of the rapid-changing technology.
2: Being very rules-based and risk-averse aren't the only factors that make federal procurement so complex. And Rong explains.
0: I mean, the overwhelming feedback from industry and other stakeholders is that, you know, our solicitations, when we describe to the market what it is we want to buy, are too long and lengthy and complicated and to government specific, they talk about the complexity that comes from having several thousand contracts across government. One company in particular has over 2,300 contracts across government for very similar services. Um, For PCs, we know we have 10,000 contracts and orders against those contracts. For very similar PCs, that's the complexity people are talking about. And so that's why when I was confirmed in September of 2014, Two months later, I put out a sort of a series of actions, a directive to the agencies about simplifying the space. And it was built around three areas, category management, uh, driving innovation, and building better vendor relationships, all with the goal of simplifying the space.
2: The complexity of the federal contracting space leads to higher costs, slower procurements, and less innovation. Simplifying the federal contracting space is critical to driving greater innovation and creativity while improving results. There's a critical need for a new paradigm for purchasing that moves from managing purchases and prices individually across thousands of procurement units to managing entire categories of common spend and total cost, and that's done through category management. Anne Rung explains.
0: Rather than organizing and tackling by procurement unit, we want to think of these goods and services by category. And so we have hired what we call category CEOs who are experts in that category to really think about how to organize that category better and drive savings and better performance. And we have a very clear set of outcomes around category management. Um, we want to first drive savings. So we've set a goal to achieve $5.8 billion in savings in the IT space by the end of this calendar year. We want to reduce contracts. So we've set a goal to reduce duplication. Another outcome that we're driving towards is just bringing more spend under management. And it's nothing, it's not that complicated of an an idea. It's just the idea that we want to make sure that all these categories have a CEO leading the category, that we have good data analytics and good metrics, and we're really managing these by categories. We are shifting the ground here and moving towards category management.
2: Working with OMB's Office of Electronic Government and Information Technology, the U.S. Digital Service, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy, Ann Rung has taken some bold steps in the last year to drive innovation in the federal acquisition workforce.
0: I am pleased to say that we have a very technically competent acquisition workforce. Our acquisition workforce are are by the most part trained to be generalist. And so when you think about the space of IT, it does require a deeper expertise. And so we launched something last year called the Digital IT Acquisition Program, DITAP. And um, it is essentially the acquisition equivalent of the U.S. digital services, except that we recruited our – are individuals um, from the agencies who are career contracting officers. And that was intentional because we want this to last, and we want this to be embedded within the agencies and and last for years to come beyond any single administration. And so we used um, a training program that we developed in partnership with industry And we uh, put out a challenge through challenge.gov and said to the public, help us think about how better to train the workforce in digital IT acquisitions. We need to provide our workforce with tools Um, And that's where the tech far comes into place in the playbook. So the playbook is quite simply a series of plays, digital plays that one could play in the acquisition um, workspace um, to better procure digital IT services. The tech far is taking those plays and explaining how you can use existing authorities in the federal acquisition regulations to do those plays. So you have the authority, you know, creating a safe space for people to apply, you know, emerging best practices in industry and apply them broadly across the agency with the support of the leadership.
2: Early, frequent, and constructive engagement with industry leads to better outcomes. Here's Anne Rung on building stronger vendor relationships.
0: And I think there's a lot of fear in talking to industry, and the reality is you can have lots of communication, and you should. So what we've tried to do is build on that good work. And so one of the things we did was partner with a group called ACT-IAC on a new industry government series called Lifting the Curtain. And it was simply trying to better understand each other's perspectives on key acquisition issues and areas. And so we held one on, you know, why companies make bid or no-bid decisions, which I attended. Uh, In addition to that, we wanted to uh, create more formal channels for industry to give us input. And so we created the first-ever transaction-based survey tool for industry to give us feedback on specific IT acquisitions um, and their viewpoint on that acquisition pre-award.
2: Have we simplified our federal acquisition marketplace to keep pace with the incredible opportunities provided by technology? Well, Ann Rung concedes that the answer is not quite yet, but we're planting the seeds and seeing positive signs of growth. Admiral Paul Zukoft, commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, is also seeing signs of positive growth, leading a service with unique and enduring value to the country. The U.S. Coast Guard is on the front line for a nation whose economic prosperity and national security are inexplicably linked to vast maritime interests.
4: This year, we'll uh, celebrate our 226th year of service, if you go back to 1790, uh, at that point, Alexander Hamilton, the father of the Coast Guard, said if we had 10 revenue cutters uh, judiciously stationed you know, at our ports, it was a point in time where we were bankrupt uh, following the Revolutionary War. And they were really there for customs duty and smuggling. Uh, Fast forward 226 years, well, we still have issues with customs, port security, smuggling, now it's drugs, Uh, and and the Coast Guard has grown and evolved to where we have just ships alone named cutters, over 244 ships versus 10. So we've come a long way in the last 226 years. Uh, We're we're a force of uh, 88,000 strong, um, but that includes 32,000 all-volunteer Coast Guard Auxiliarists. Uh, We're also a law enforcement authority. Uh, We're a member of the national intelligence community. We're a humanitarian service when it comes to safety of life at sea. Most people are familiar with our search and rescue missions. We're a regulator. Uh, We regulate maritime commerce. We safeguard maritime commerce, and we maintain the waterways that that move. Ninety-five percent of global commerce moves by sea. Uh, Prior, Our our biggest challenge was just getting uh, the number of overseers to understand the Coast Guard. We would often describe ourselves by our 11 statutory authorities that translate to missions. We have broad authorities in the Arctic at a point in time where we're seeing unprecedented human activity in the Arctic region. Uh, We've seen between unaccompanied minors, drug flows in the Western Hemisphere. The Coast Guard has over 40 counter-drug bilateral agreements with all of the transit source zone nations and Central South America, Caribbean island nations, So we're very relevant there as well. And then with cyber, we kicked out a cyber strategy, and that is everything from preventing acts of terrorism by defending your cyber domain, uh, using cyber offensively, and then we also work with the maritime industry so they can protect their cyber interests as well. So we rolled out four strategies in the last two years, one on Arctic, another Western hemisphere, one on energy, another on cyber. And then we just finished the most important one, is how are you going to manage your human capital in the 21st century as well? Uh, none of these strategies really existed in our previous 225 years. Admiral Zukopte admits he has faced some rather unexpected surprises. Uh, we knew our fleet was getting old, so that was no surprise to me. The surprise was some of the initial resistance that we faced in justifying why we need to modernize the fleet. Uh, so I would say the first two years have been a bit of a honeymoon. This this year, we, we saw the largest appropriation uh, delivered to the Coast Guard in the history of the Coast Guard. A very pleasant surprise, which allows us to modernize without having to draw down our force structure. So uh, a number of pleasant surprises uh, as I look back in the last two years.
2: Modernizing the U.S. Coast Guard rests on what they call the Commandant's intent.
4: There's three key tenets to it. And the first thing is, we serve our nation before we serve ourselves, and wherever we're called to serve. The second tenet is about duty to people. Uh, The third tenet is about committing to excellence. Gone are the days where we could be a Swiss Army knife, a jack-of-all-trades, master of some. You've got to grow the specialties to be able to excel in those areas. Admiral Paul Zukopth, commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard,
2: outlines what the Coast Guard is doing to enhance the Southern Maritime
4: border security really comes down to uh, intelligence um, and working across the interagency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within DHS, it's within our immigration and Customs Enforcement, Customs and Border Protection, and Coast Guard have really been the triad for the Department of Homeland Security from investigative work, surveillance, and ultimately interdiction. We work hand in glove with the Joint Interagency Task Force mm-hmm. South and then under Secretary Johnson, we've uh, created three task forces, um, a joint task force east, west, and one exclusively for investigations. East looks at maritime, joint task force west looks at our, our southwest border, our, our port, land ports of entry. So this is the first time where you've seen the Department of Homeland Security, in the absence of Goldwater-Nichols, really have a unified approach to dealing with some of the threats on our south border, maritime and land.
2: Given the age and condition, Of the U.S. Coast Guard's legacy assets, future mission success relies on a continued recapitalization of the Coast Guard boats, cutters, aircraft, systems, and infrastructure.
4: Our 16 appropriation awarded a ninth national security cutter. So we went from eight to nine. Uh, We're building out very capable uh, patrol boats. Uh, And so we have the appropriation. We'll build out 58 of these. What will really define the Coast Guard going forward in the maritime realm is going to be the offshore patrol cutter. The program of record for that would build out 25 offshore patrol cutters at a point in time where our 210-foot medium endurance cutters are approaching their 50th year of service. Mm -hmm. And by the time that first offshore patrol cutter is delivered, some of those ships will actually be approaching 55 years of service. Uh, And then finally, the real big piece in all of this is the recapitalization of our icebreaker fleet. Our 17 budget does have a $150 million set aside to at least get into the design work. We've already reached out to industry, uh, and they are keenly interested in building heavy icebreakers here in the United States, which we have not done in over 40 years. Admiral Zukavs on the value of being in the Coast Guard. Uh, And you could ask anyone in the Coast Guard, indirectly or directly, I'm going to save a life. I'm going to improve our economy. I'm going to keep drugs off the street, you name it. So we need to make sure that we always have that connective tissue to what we do, and we do it with our workforce as well. You can't surge experience, and you certainly can't surge leadership.
2: Reflections on reforming the military health system when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.
5: What are the benefits of pursuing enterprise risk management? How can risk management enhance departmental decision-making? How are you fostering a culture of risk awareness across an enterprise? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Karen Hardy, Deputy Director for Risk Management at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.
2: Welcome back to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Dr. Jonathan Woodson, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs at the U.S. Department of Defense, served as the principal advisor of health affairs to multiple secretaries of defense. In that role, he led DOD's military health system, overseeing DOD's $50 billion health budget, and shepherding this mission-critical care system through some major reform efforts. Just before leaving his post, Dr. Woodson reflected on his tenure, his efforts to reform the military health system, transform military medicine, and strengthen
6: the department's global health engagement. This is uh, probably will be the best job I've ever had. Uh, I'm very honored and privileged that the, um, the president uh, nominated and appointed me, and uh, I will carry great memories uh, forward in life, uh, and I thank the men and women of the military health system uh, for the tremendous job they do every day. But the real issue about this job, uh, and particularly at this time in history, I entered the job, remember, um, as we were really in the height of the wars. Uh, We were still in both Iraq and Afghanistan with substantial troop uh, deployments. And... um, I was uh, entering this job where we needed to deal with those real issues and the injuries that were being generated uh, from those uh, conflicts and also pivoting to the future to make sure that we created a military health system that would be responsive in the future. Over the last couple of years, Dr. Woodson has focused on six key strategic areas. The first uh, line of effort, again, was to modernize uh, the MHS management with an enterprise focus. Um, There were several acts. Uh, There were many actions, but several that were important. So it was about establishing the Defense Health Agency uh, to create economies of scale and efficiency. But it was also about ensuring that we had a strategy for delivering care in what we called our multi-service markets, which would allow us to optimize the use of the military treatment facilities as service points, but also optimize what uh, we would pay for in the uh, purchase care market uh, when it wasn't available in the Military treatment uh, uh, facilities. The second, of course, was about defining uh, the 21st century medical capabilities that were necessary. We've got to meet that need and meet it with agility, uh, flexibility, um, and economy and scalability. Uh, So the third was about uh, creating a new strategy for the force management. So today we have many more subspecialists. We have many more critical specialties. And so you need to develop a human capital program uh, that allows you to uh, assess, retain, recruit, and maintain a broad array of specialties. Uh, The fourth line of effort was about uh, defining and uh, expanding and investing in our strategic partners. The fifth was about reforming TRICARE. And then the last was about defining our requirements and competencies in global health engagement, uh, which again, as I Said is a new instrument of national powers. Dr. Woodson elaborates on adopting enterprise management. And creating the Defense Health Agency? Well, you know, uh, I always say don't never let a good crisis go un, unutilized. And at that time, of course, healthcare inflation uh, was uh, skyrocketing. And so, barring on experience from the civilian sector, I knew that we needed to reorganize so that we decreased variability uh, around the health system, that we were all operating from the highest standards and platforms and service delivery strategies. Uh, and so, this is where. Where you get into the defense health agency which is uh, a joint uh, agency that in fact uh, establishes uh, those standards acquires uh, the business tools allows us to create performance improvement dashboards that uh, senior leaders can monitor which can drill down to the individual military treatment facilities so that we have a common sight picture we know to where to put resources we know where there are problems and we can correct those uh, problems uh, so this is enterprise management Dr. Woodson reflects on enhancing the DoD's global health engagement. Yes, so, so global health engagement um, is uh, this emerging concept that uh, we can, through uh, health diplomacy, through health engagement around the world, build bridges and, um, Help create the elements of uh, stable societies, uh, because when uh, societies and countries invest in health, that's really a marker that they are more stable. It's a it's a reflection of their value system, a, a, respl- a reflection of their priorities. It's a reflection of investing in their people. Uh, it's a reflection of, uh, in fact, uh, that they're considering the future of their people when um, they invest in health. And global health engagement in concept is that if you uh, invest in engagement around the world, uh, you actually elevate the reputation of uh, uh, America um, in uh, helping individual nations and regions achieve uh, their health goals. Dr. Jonathan Woodson, former Assistant Secretary
2: of Defense for Health Affairs, on what he's most proud of.
6: I think my... My proudest accomplishment was, again, being a servant leader uh, in support of uh, the 150,000 men and women of the military health system and giving them uh, a new uh, set of uh, strategies and organizational environment to succeed in the future. Um, and it's all the things that uh, we, we, we talked about. Um, uh, I think I have supported uh, the uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense uh, uh, well. During the year, I speak with government leaders who are
2: pushing limits, transforming the way things are done, and most of all, changing the way government does business. Most Americans purchase food for their family's dinner table with a high level of assurance that the food is safe. Much of the effort for securing the U.S. food supply rests on the work of the Food Safety and Inspection Service within the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA, advances the protection of America's food supply and offers insights into his agency's efforts to transform the system, ensuring this country's food is safe and uncontaminated.
7: FSIS is a public health agency at USDA, or United States Department of Agriculture, uh, that's responsible for ensuring uh, that the nation's commercial supply of meat, poultry, processed eggs, and now catfish, uh, whether domestic or imported, is safe, wholesome, uh, and correctly labeled.
2: Almanza describes his responsibilities – as the leader of USDA's food safety effort and the unique challenges he
7: faces in this role. I'm responsible for making sure that the agency functions uh, effectively and that it implements the the best new food safety inspection approaches uh, that are are in the market. I'm responsible for ensuring that USDA is effectively carrying out its food safety mission, uh, which plays right into what USDA as a whole does uh, and looking at looking out for ag uh, and, and inspection type activities uh, within our scope and our mission. Modernization uh, is is one of the key key things that that I'm dealing with. Um, inspection, uh, like moving inspection to a more automated uh, type science based uh, approach, to be able to capitalize on the data that they're catching or capturing every single day, um, communicating effectively to the field. That's another, uh, what I would say, challenge, trying to uh, mediate that and trying to find ways to, to do that. But but still, we have a new um, a program called iImpact, uh, which is going out to all our field employees. Uh, the third thing is improving efficiency. I would say uh, PHIS, our public health information system, which, again, is the electronic method for us capturing data of every single task that our employees capture every single day as they're performing tasks in these uh, establishments.
2: Al Monza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at USDA, describes the current landscape of food safety and some of the key threats
7: facing it. Uh, we inspect every single animal that's slaughtered for food. So then you have... Um, poultry, um, the poultry inspection process where we're there every single day as long as they're slaughtering. Uh, so regardless of whether it's making uh, sausage or beef jerky or any poultry products, we have an inspector that comes in, basically verifies that what they're doing uh, within the the HACCP um, arrangement that we have and that, we, that we're uh, assuring that those things are, are or processed properly, one of the things that we're really focused on right now is salmonella. Salmonella is is something that we uh, we just uh, did a new poultry uh, parts performance standard because we noticed that we were taking samples of, of whole birds and not finding uh, the levels of salmonella that were that were out in the or that CDC told us were necessarily prevalent. Uh, we're also focused on E. coli 015787. Obviously, that's something that's always on our radar screen. Campylobacter is another pathogen that we're focused on, uh, and we believe that we're going to make some headway with our new performance standard.
2: Almanza outlines the key priorities for
7: the food safety agency he leads. Uh, we're always looking at ways to keep the, the public safe and uh, in, in trying to be creative and innovative in the ways that we apply our regulatory authority. FSIS coordinates closely with uh, other federal public health agencies, such as the FDA and uh, CDC. And uh, this collaboration makes FSIS uh, much more effective and improves our responses, particularly uh, during recalls and outbreaks.
2: In 2013, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, embarked on an ambitious effort to modernize its information technology infrastructure, transforming from an agency with 207 different IT systems to one with a cloud-based common data platform that would play a significant role in creating a more dynamic and agile enterprise. Dr. David Bray, FCC's chief information officer, orchestrated this transformation Bray recognized that the resources spent on maintaining existing IT systems were unsustainable and unacceptable for an organization that was supposed to be at the forefront of 21st century communications technology. The FCC IT division was lagging behind. So the
1: mission of the Federal Communications Commission dates back to the 1930s, in which we uh, were actually the uh, follow-on for the Federal Radio Commission. So everything wired and wireless within the United States, Uh, so whether it's satellite radios, whether it's your ham radio, uh, whether it's anything involving spectrum or how you get that license for spectrum, FCC interacts with the public and with industry to make sure that the interest of the nation is represented. And so anything that's wired or wireless, you can actually see on your wired devices or wireless devices, you'll see an FCC logo. That means it's actually uh, been approved to be used at that spectrum. And so FCC, it's actually fairly small for everything it does. It's only about 750 people. With that, it's it's a lot of issues ranging from the economics of wired devices to the markets to the spectrum.
2: Dr. David Bray, CIO at FCC, considers himself both a digital diplomat and a human flak jacket. And that brings with it serious challenges.
1: So I think the first was how do we do what we need to do in terms of transformation in a way that's not just linear incremental updates but really is game-changing and at the same time manage the friction associated with it. Uh, Anytime you're going to try and make change... Anytime you're trying to do something to make it better, there's still going to be a resistance to doing it because people may be used to the processes or used to the user interfaces that were associated with it. And so my big challenge was to demonstrate enough small successive wins building up to a larger win. Uh, and we actually did that with our consumer help desk. The next challenge was the workforce. Um, the IT workforce was feeling disempowered and, and sort of just demoralized there was a lot of good happening, but it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is if you don't think anything good's going to happen, then nothing is perceived as being good. And then finally, really just sort of communicating that we need to do things at exponential
2: speed. Bray outlines his strategic priorities for FCC's IT division.
1: When I arrived, there were 207 different systems on premise, as mentioned, and they were average age 10 years old. And what was even more disturbing was those systems were consuming more than 85% of our budget just to maintain them. The first approach was stabilization, the idea that the patient's bleeding, the patient's not doing too well. We have to at least first stabilize the patient so that we can get the patient walking and eventually running. And that was just doing good IT hygiene, getting good sense of what we've got, just sort of getting good discipline and things that you would hope to be in place when I arrived that maybe weren't in place. The next step, which was rationalization, and we were actually going to move the servers off-site, we need to at least have the email in place before we actually pull the plug. We really had to do the, quote-unquote, open-heart surgery. So we then focused in on the third stage, which is now we actually at and actually is the fun part. We got everything off-site. We now have nothing at the FCC. We've managed to reduce our maintenance spend from being 85% to now being less than 50%. And that gives us the fuel, given that the FCC's budget has not been increased. The last six years has been flat. So we were actually able to find the fuel for modernization simply out of the efficiencies we got out of doing the server lift.
2: He elaborates on the success that is Operation Server Lift.
1: Don't underestimate the need to build a strong coalition with your team. You can get all the technology right, but, you know, there will be something that will go surprise. There will be a hiccup. And what you really want is a strong coalition, both with your private sector partners that are helping you make it happen, as well as the government workforce. And you really want them to be intrinsically motivated. The next thing is plan... Plan, plan, and then also expect that even though you've planned it to the nth degree, something will still go wrong. Uh, With the server lift, we did have a surprise where we got there and the cabling didn't match the topology that we had at the FCC. And so that took a little bit of time to, to get everything back up. But that actually was one of the, in some respects, best moments because, you know, it could have easily devolved into finger pointing and blame and everything like that.
2: David Bray outlines the benefits and challenges of moving IT systems to the cloud.
1: I think really what cloud gets you is, first and foremost, is agility. Um, and that's something that's only recently become a requirement for organizations just because the world is changing so fast. We talked about how it was changing exponentially. If you're efficient but you're not fast, you're dead as an organization, whether you're a private sector or a public sector. The, the second thing is the need for resiliency. And then finally, you get the efficiency. And so we have had a cases where it's generally about one-fifth or one-sixth
2: the price to do it in the cloud. Um, and that's, that's for new development. Laverne Council, Assistant Secretary for Information Technology and Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, outlines her efforts to change the way VA does IT and conveys insights into how best to use technology to serve veterans more
8: effectively. I'm responsible for about 8,000 employees, 8,000 contractors. 56% of those folks are veterans. Um, I manage an appropriation of a little over $4 billion and really in support of all the areas that I mentioned to you. Um, my objective and the objective that I have every day is to think about how we're going to change that veteran's experience, how we're going to make it easier for the folks that support them to utilize technology in doing that, and also ensuring that we are secure uh, with with their information um, as well as our employee information. It is a full-time, full-time job. Um, Technology is a core part of everybody's lives today. And so with all the things that come with that, including what I call the consumerization of IT, because they have it at home, you know, people want it at work. And so IT always has to be looking at the new new, but in this case, looking at it for the veteran and and thinking about what can we do to give them access and to their information and make it seamless to them when they come to the VA for benefits.
2: Challenges abound when you run the IT organization. For a department with such an important mission as VA?
8: I think probably the the, the biggest one is working culture. That's always the hardest. And what I mean by that is uh, just because you have the drive and we all come for the mission, reminding people why they, they come for the mission and why change is okay. I think the second is to ensure that we're using all the resources provided to us to our best of our abilities. And, and I think the third thing is, is you know, this role requires that I have a, a line into the hill um, and because it is a separate appropriation and people want to know what's happening with technology. So communication is everything in, in my business um, and making sure that I'm communicating well, often, and accurately. And, and so it is a constant. It's, it's something I think every leader has to do. And um, in this role, is really a requirement. VA's
2: Office of Information and Technology is at a critical inflection point, so much so that Laverne Council has crafted a new VA IT strategy.
8: It, it was really interesting, you know. As a political appointee, and frankly, as someone who only had about eighteen months of time, um, the, the the ideal recommendation was that you come in and you figure out how to do one or two things, and you make those one or two things happen, and you you know you say your goodbyes. Um, when I um, joined the VA, as I started looking at the organization, thinking about what was needed for the veteran, and also thinking about what do you do when organizations in crisis? And I've managed a number of crisis kinds of situations before. Um, it it really came through loud and clear. I'm not going to be able to do the two projects. Um, this is. For me to feel good about this time and for me to feel good about this leadership opportunity, I've got to do something that I was hoping I wouldn't have to, which is transform the organization. And the first thing that we focused on was our enterprise cybersecurity strategy. The next concern I had was how do I ensure that this team can continue down the path of transformation once I'm no longer with it? And, you know, that requires a very strong framework, a way that people can think about their work, the way that they can repeat their work. I needed to figure out something that was simple. And the simple was giving people a time frame to think about the work that we need to do. And the time frame was now near future. So now is in six months or less, near was six to 18 months, and future was 18 or more, 18 to 36 months, actually. And the concept there is so that the team would always understand that in order to move something forward, you've got to think about what you need to do now. Um, In addition, we also added a new data management function. Um, In addition, we added an account management function. Um, We also added a quality and compliance group. And then ultimately, we also want to move into a buy first. Um, There's a lot of custom development, and we really want to take advantage of some of the best and bright solutions that are out there. Council elaborates
2: on the mission and purpose of her newly created Enterprise Program Management Office, EPMO.
8: Well, the Enterprise uh, Portfolio Management Office or EPMO maintains all the project and program managers for the organization. The idea is that we will build a competency of excellence for program and project management, that this is the group that will manage and lead these projects. Um, All groups will work with them to do that. And this is actually in line with the Fetera Law. Um, which we are fully leveraging, which allows the CIO really to be engaged with making those decisions and working with the project managers to get the most done with what we're given. It is really critical, and I always tell people I'm nothing but a um, mature person project program manager. I I think at the end of the day, that's what leaders really are. You know, you're figuring out how to get the resources, you're figuring out how to leverage time, and you're figuring out how to balance what is finite. And um, there is no infinite set of anything. So how do I use what I have best to get what I can? And I want the most from it. So program project management is core.
2: Here's VACIO, Laverne Council on how the role has evolved in government and what are some of the key characteristics that makes one a successful CIO?
8: You know, the CIO role, I, I think, in the last 20 years has changed a lot. Um, many people, as you looked at them, um, the CIO used to be the person that understood what happened in a data center. Um, and they were the techie, and they can tell you all the bits and bytes and how much email you moved, and, and that's how you saw them. Um Over the years, and especially in private industry, but also in the agencies with the CIOs I've met, you're now seeing a, a different kind of business leader, generally someone who might have had a great deal of business experience as well as technical experience, because you have to bring both to bear. So the CIO really has to not only understand their business, but understands everybody else's. They also have to be creative at the same time. And and so it is a tough job. I will tell anybody that um, it is not for the, the weak at heart or those people that don't want to work hard because you never know what's going to pop up and you've got to be prepared. Stay tuned as we wrap up this edition of the Business of
2: Government magazine with a discussion on strategic intelligence. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to field the U.S. Army of Tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Today's government executives face serious and sometimes seemingly intractable issues that can cut to the core of effective governance and leadership. It calls for leaders to cultivate and possess conceptual tools that foster the practice of foresight, visioning, partnering, and motivating, what Dr. Michael McAbee refers to as strategic intelligence.
9: Strategic intelligence is a, first of all, let me say it's a system. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, each part of strategic intelligence uh, interacts with other parts. So, you can't really take them apart. Second of all, let me say it is a quality that may not be in a single individual, but in a team. Now, it includes, first of all, foresight. Mm-hmm. Uh, any strategy it has to start out. What is? What are the threats? What are the opportunities? What's coming in the future? And that has to be very clear at the top of any organization. But that has to go, be transformed into a vision of taking advantage of the threats and opportunities. So from foresight, you get visioning. But to realize the vision, to execute the vision, nobody can do it themselves. So, you have to have partnering. You have to have the ability to partner with other people who complement your abilities. Third, you need to understand psychology Mm -hmm. and particularly personality. Otherwise, you're not going to partner very well. And as you see, you're not going to be able to understand what motivates and engages people, what brings out their intrinsic motivation. And finally, you need to understand how you create new knowledge, mm-hmm. because any organization today to be sustainable has to be able to continually innovate, continually improve, and that involves understanding the processes of creating knowledge.
2: Dr. Maccabee elaborates on the three types of leaders identified in his work, strategic intelligence.
9: The reason leadership has become so important, is change. Mm-hmm. You can't have change without leaders. Once, when you had kind of bureaucracies that were stable, not changing, you didn't need leaders. You had managers. You had people keeping the, the ship on its course. So what is a leader? Well, really the only definition of a leader that makes sense to me is a leader with somebody with followers, because if you have followers you're a leader mm-hmm. and if you don't I don't care if you're a president you're not a leader one is a, one is a, a strategic leader mm-hmm. these are the people the jeff bezos the elon musk steve jobs these are the people the visionaries and they're often rather narcissistic and and grandiose and they're not easy to work with and tend to put people down Second of all, you need operational leaders. Those are the ones who take that vision and look for the processes, get people working together, continuous improvement, making things happen. Third kind of leader is a network leader. You need somebody, preferably, who has no hierarchical role at all, but has a personality to create trust, create collaboration.
2: Maccabee explains the relationship between personality. And leadership.
9: If we look at the types of leaders, though, there tend to be certain kind of typical personality differences. As so I pointed out, a lot of visionaries have a narcissistic personality. Why? Because as children, they didn't identify with the older generation. They really um, wanted to create their own vision, their own sense of meaning. So they're really driven to change the world in a sense that they think, so Steve Jobs wanted to change the way we all work. I mean that's a very different thing from being a success or rising up the hierarchy. The operational leaders tend to have more be more of exacting obsessive types they they really their intrinsic motivation they like to make things perfect. They like to solve problems. They like to uh, get people working on continuous improvement, et cetera. And then the uh, if we look at the network leaders, they tend to be more people-focused, more people with emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. create much more of a sense of trust, or they can be much more of an interactive personality, which is being developed. The the social character in our society is shifting from a bureaucratic social character to an interactive social character. And that has to do with a lot of factors.
2: Dr. Michael Maccabee, author of the book Strategic Intelligence, explains how it is developed and employed.
9: We've had real effectiveness both working with government leaders and business leaders in developing strategic intelligence. Mm. It's a three-day workshop. But by understanding strategic intelligence, it really helped them to see how to design an idealized future and and clarify their philosophy and values so that everybody was on the same page working together.
2: The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine has a forum dedicated to a management roadmap for the next administration. In January 2017, the inauguration of the 45th president of the United States will be followed by the transition of government to a new administration. The president and senior staff will be focused on important policy and challenges at home and abroad. For new leadership teams across the government, effective management will constitute a critical success factor for the implementation of the president's agenda, the execution of that agenda by millions of federal employees and partners, and the public's confidence in the government's performance. As part of transition planning, the presidential candidates will benefit significantly from a robust roadmap for effective management that is planned well in advance. A sound management roadmap will enable developing the capacity to achieve key outcomes for government missions and programs. Such a roadmap should identify how work will get done, in addition to defining what initiatives should be addressed. By doing so, the next president can leverage an agenda for governing that builds upon current progress, increases the likelihood of success, accelerates action on important priorities, and reduces risk. In the end, we hope that the insights and recommendations highlighted in this forum are instructive to the government leaders heeding the call to service in the next administration. Hope you've enjoyed the perspectives, insights, recommendations, and profiles presented on today's The Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. You may order or download a free copy of the latest Business of Government magazine at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
9: This has been the
1: Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
5: What are the benefits of pursuing enterprise risk management? How can risk management enhance departmental decision-making? How are you fostering a culture of risk awareness across an enterprise? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Karen Hardy, Deputy Director for Risk Management at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.